Hi listeners, welcome back and thanks for tuning in to your next episode of Inside the Rope, the podcast where we speak to the leading minds in wealth management. I'm the host, David Clark, and in this episode, I'm pretty excited to be speaking with Tim King, one of the founders and investment manager of Melior. Melior is an impact-focused investment fund that invests in listed companies both here in Australia and New Zealand with the ability to hold up to 10% in unlisted companies. For me, the world of ethical investment and impact investment is just exploding. We're seeing an unprecedented amount of interest in this area as people look to use their capital not only for returns, but to create some good. I think it's really interesting the way that Melior focuses their investment, invests in many areas that most people wouldn't associate with ethical investment. Their investment in Fortescue that Tim discussed at length is a great example of that. I think it's also interesting how they're able to partake in advocacy in the market, particularly in those companies they're not necessarily invested in. He talks at length about Crown Casino and some of the governance issues going on there during this episode. Please remember that this episode's not designed to be, nor is it, specific advice, and people are encouraged to listen to the disclaimer at the end of the podcast and seek advice before making any potential investments. Remember to keep your feedback coming and subscribe to the podcast. Please share it with a friend. You can email me, keep your feedback coming, at david.clark at codacapital.com. Tim King, welcome to Inside the Rope. Thanks, David. Tim, perhaps you could start off by giving us a bit of background as to who Tim King is for our listeners. Yeah, so going back into the distant past, David, so I was born in New Zealand, grew up in New Zealand, went to university in New Zealand, So, um, and I uh, was fortunate enough to get a Fulbright scholarship and went and studied in the US, went and studied in Germany in one of the economic think tanks, which was fabulous. Met my wife, um, didn't want to go back to New Zealand, so Australia was a halfway ground between Europe and New Zealand, we've been here ever since. So, um, And I man, I was able to secure a job from Germany working for Professor Ian Harper, um, who's a pretty renowned economist um, at the Melbourne Business School, working, doing some research for, for Ian. Ian's obviously on the board of Reserve Bank now, and um, that was a, a you know temporary position, and I applied for this research job at, well, what was called Potter Warburg back in the day, it's now UBS. Um, and I didn't really know what I was getting into, but I thought sell-side research looks pretty interesting. So I spent um, you know, 25 years or so in sell-side research, UBS City. I did a stint offshore as well, um, 10 years head of research at Deutsche, um, and then moved by side working um, at Colonial First State in the core team, um, managing about $5 billion. So sell-side and buy-side experience. But I've, I've always been interested in ESG, and I'm happy to talk um, in the program about that as well. Um, and then there's this opportunity um, when Lucy Steed, my co-founder at Malleol, reached out to me and said, look, I've got this idea of launching an impact fund in public equities. And so hence we launched Malleol and we've been going uh, almost two years now. So, so tell us about Malleol. What, what is it? What does it do? Yeah, so it's unique. So um, maybe I should just talk about my interest in ESG. So I, you know, I've always had a, a, a lot of... Um, interest in ESG from a from a financial risk materiality understanding because 
as we've seen over the last year, right, ESG factors um, ultimately feed into financial factors, right, and have material mm-hmm. inf- impacts on share prices. And so if we look at um, Rio Tinto, CleanAway, QBE, Crown, AMP, you know, the list goes on, right? Arguably, ultimately, there are ESG issues that have ultimately fed into financial issues and resulted either the, the loss of the, the chairperson and, and or the CEO. So, you know, material consequences for those companies. So, so you're basically saying that, you know, forget the do-good or, uh, you know, the, the, the sort of far left bleeding heart, if you'd like, um, wanting to do good via the environment and uh, ethical and social and governance issues, if you were just to come at this from a hard financial perspective, you would be very interested in ESG. Well, I think the former point is really important too, and I, I wouldn't describe it as <clears throat> as far left at all, but I'll talk about that in a second. But yeah, that, that was how I um, first got my understanding is that, yes, from a pure, pure financial perspective, if you have a deep understanding of material ESG issues, mm. The companies face, and, and they differ by company, right? I mean, animal testing is, is a is a deep um, material ESG factor for healthcare companies, but it isn't an issue for a utilities company, for you. So you got to understand what the materials un- material issues are, and, and if you're able to understand those, understand how they could impact the financials, you know that that gives you a much better understanding of the company, and certainly a much better understanding of the risk profile of the company. So that's what I started doing, sell side, and I sort of really developed my knowledge and and interest about that. But in setting up Melia, we, we've taken it another step further. So what we do is when our first step is um, investing in companies that um, generate positive impact, they produce goods and services that enhance the UN Sustainable Development Goals. There's 17 goals mm-hmm. that, you know, to create a better world, both socially and, and environmentally. So that's what the companies do. But then the how they go about it is an ESG assessment of how the companies actually go about doing business. And if you put those two things together, you get a really deep understanding of, of the material risk factors, also opportunities, right? Because our argument is if, if you align with those UNC SDGs, there's some mega themes there, like renewable energy and stranded assets, fossil fuel um, assets being stranded, that also generate alpha. So put the, put the two together and, and the significant alpha opportunities. And there's a whole heap of empirical and academic research which supports that notion and indeed so far you know from um the, for, for the first 18 months uh, of us being in operation you know we're up 1300 basis points compared to my um compared to our benchmark which is the asx 300 um but obviously the financials also you know we do deep financial analysis as well mm-hmm. but the key is i think there's two keys number one understanding those those ESG risk and factors, how they impact on the financials, um, and then being able to splice the two and understand how the two work. And, and that's that's very powerful. And the whole notion that you need to accept a trade-off you know, for your returns to, to so-called do good, I think is completely flawed. So, and, and so far, that that's at least what our performance has shown, that you can actually do good and generate um, you know, superior alpha at the same time. So there's, there's not a trade-off. So talk to me a little bit about how you come to set up Melior and why you alluded to it there, but I'd be really keen to understand what were the driving factors and how that's resulted in the current mandate and how that's structured together so we can bring the listeners through on this journey. Yeah. So um, 
Well, the, the actual idea of setting up Malior, um, an impact fund and public equities, which, which is a very unusual concept because you've got these um, the key issues for generating impact is um, intentionality mm-hmm. and additionality, right? And that's, that's much easier to demonstrate in private capital, right? Because you, you say you, you put in a dollar to build a wind farm, that's obviously additional because the wind farm wouldn't be created without a, that additional dollar of capital. And it's obviously intentional because my intention is to build the wind farm um, to generate renewable energy. Th- those two criteria are satisfied really easily. That, that's, that's much more complicated in, in public equities. It, it's entirely achievable, um, but you just have to think about it in a different way. So, so the, we think about additionality, for example, is that a big part of what we do is advocacy. So talking to companies from board level down, right? Um, about how they measure their ESG, how they disclose, and most importantly, what their targets are. Um, and we've had quite a lot of success for that. So we're able to influence companies. Um, and just as an aside there, there's also another misnomer that you have to own the companies to influence. Our experience has been that you, that is completely not the case at all. And in fact, it's almost an advantage. We get great access to companies we can't and don't own because we're an independent voice, right? They're very happy to talk to us. What, what do you think? And what do you think we should be doing about this? Because this is a complex, fast-moving space. So, um, so no one's really, you know, with limited examples, set up impact fund and public equities because it is quite difficult to do. And we've spent a lot of time developing frameworks, as I said, to demonstrate intentionality and additionality and so forth, and, and how we measure our impact, which is really important. So it hadn't really been done before. But if you look at uh, the economy, the bulk of commerce is done through the lens of public companies, right? So unless we can get public capital to move to solve the social environmental um, problems we face, we're not really going to solve the problems, right? So Rob Koska and Anthony Kerwick, who set up Adamantum Capital, which is a PE firm, and they're our backers. Rob, for a period of time, was CEO of Social Ventures Australia, which is one of our philanthropic partners at Melior, Mm -hmm. which helps people disadvantaged. So Rob had the idea, well, you know, know, we're not really going to solve these problems until we mobilise public capital. And so hence he connected with Lucy, connected with myself, and let's set up this fund uh, where we invest in create in companies in public markets, ASX listed, uh, um, ASX NZX listed. So, and you can have a portion of unlisted. Yes, so we can. We up can ten percent, yes. something like that. Yeah. And what size is the fund at the moment? Well, we're still relatively small, right. so we're just over we're over fifty million now. Yes. Um, but this time last year we were close to zero, so it's growing pretty quickly. And I think, given the stage of our development, we're about, you know, as I said, just over a year and a half of track record. Um, you know, we're happy with the with the growth of the fund. And, and how, what sort of size can a strategy of, of this sort get to in your view? Well, we're, we're, not, we're not small cap constrained, mm-hmm. right? We can, invest, can do invest in large cap, so we think about $3 billion. Mm-hmm. Um, We get a lot of questions about, well, why aren't you launching a GOAT global fund? Why aren't you launching a small cap fund? And, and they're all excellent ideas. It's just like our view is let's, let's uh, get this up and running first and explore maybe explore those options further down the track. But we just want to get, you know, we're still in the growth phase. We're, on, we're in the market now hiring two new analysts to grow the team. So we're growing quickly and we're investing in the, in the future. So. And I think with the performance, I, I looked at some numbers that might be a little bit dated now to the end of December or end of last calendar year where you'd been at about 18% compound per annum versus about the market at about 5.1. So I'd imagine, albeit short time frame, probably too early, but still 
very encouraging results. Yeah, abso absolutely. We're encouraged. Yeah. Can we circle back then? I think you made an excellent point that a lot of people think there are trade-offs that come from yeah. investing in things that are for good. Um, you know, I think a lot of people will think about um, uh, defence, um, uh, you know, all sorts of um, industries which, which, which may be gambling, alcohol, tobacco, which have made a lot of money in the past and have all sorts of negative consequences. Um, and therefore they think, well, if I'm trading off participation in those sort of, um, those sort of investment opportunities, surely I'll be doing some harm to my portfolio in, in what I can expect. And you're saying the opposite has been true. Can you talk to us about that and maybe give some examples? Yeah, sure, sure. So what, what our argument, well, to, to two parts of it. So if, if we're investing in companies that are um, creating positive impact, mm -hmm. and what I mean by the, that, you know, companies do good things as well as bad things typically, right? So we think about that in net terms, but net terms... Um, producing goods and services that are aligned with the UN SDGs, you're actually aligning yourself with some mega thematics, right? Like, um, you know, we need aged care, aging population, that that's mm -hmm. a growing um, segment of the community that needs to be looked after. Or we're talking about circular economy, right? So clearly um, waste management is, is a growing segment, uh, a growing industry because we need to recycle products. Or... Um, you know, renewables and stranded assets around fossil fuels, you know, that's another, another mega thematic. So by investing in companies that align to those thematics, right, you, you, and typically you're going to see superior growth. So there's an alpha opportunity there. But then you look at the ESG, how those companies go about doing business. And if they have good ESG credentials, and what I mean by good is that they report on their material um, ESG factors, that may be their emissions. And when I mean emissions and Sorry, I'm going to use a bit of jargon here, and I don't know if you want me to explain that. Me a scope one, scope two, and scope three, right? So full supply chain emissions. Dig down on those for us. Yeah. Okay. So, tech, well, first of all, many companies don't disclose their emissions. Number one, but when they do, they often say, you know, we've got a net zero target, and it's scope one, which is the emissions that they produce themselves, mm -hmm. plus scope two, which is typically the emissions that are produced from electricity that they source, and there's emissions that are incurred from producing that electricity. Mm -hmm then they ignore scope three. But scope three is the emissions that are occurred when your product is used by someone else. So for example, in the production of iron ore, the large majority of emissions is scope three. It's, it's, it's in the steelworks in China mm -hmm. um, where those emissions are, are occurred. And increasingly, there's pressure on companies for a whole raft of reasons to uh, disclose those emissions, but also target those emissions. And targeting the scope three is, is clearly really difficult because you don't control your customer base. So, so but when we go into that ESG, so it's about disclosure and it's about are the targets science-based? So, for example, in the case of emissions, we want emissions targets that are Paris-aligned, you know, 1.5 degree world or less, right? So that means net zero, including the full suite of emissions, by 2050 or before 2050. Um, and the reason why that's important is that companies that don't do that properly are subject to a lot of risk. It could be reputational risk. Um, it could be uh, litigation risk. It could be policy risk. It could be regulatory. There's a lot of risks there. And so I'll give you an example. If, if you look at a company like Crown, mm -hmm. um, and the G is very, you know, the governance, right, is, is very important factor. You know, how is the board structured? Is it independent? Does it have the requisite skills, independence, and all that to actually 
provide the appropriate steward. So we spend a lot of time looking at G, super important. Mm -hmm. um, but the, if you look at Crown, you know, what's clearly what's happened is, you know, there's a whole bunch because of the, the poor governance and the, and, the, and, the, and the ESG risk that's uh, um, been created from that. You, you've had, you know, you got legal response, you've got policy responses, you've got regulatory responses, and we've seen the consequence on the company and the share price, right? So, and there's lots of examples of that. I mean, you know, as I said, the example, some of the examples I gave, you know, QBE, Clean Away, Rio Tinto, AMP, right? That they are ultimately ESG factors that are a risk, which have resulted in, in one of those um, risks being exposed, right? And sometimes it's just reputational. How many companies are there currently in the portfolio? Around 30. So we're a relatively high concentrated, conviction. high conviction, low turnover. So we spend a lot of time um, doing research and we do all our own work. We don't outsource to anyone. Mm -hmm. It's a really important point. We don't use any external data providers for, for ESG and there's good reasons for that. Happy to talk about that. Um, we spend a lot of time looking at the financials. So, you know, we're financial analysts at heart. Yes. Um, and so really uh, important to have analysts understand as said, how the ESG intersects with the financials. So we spend a lot of time understanding the ESG material risks, factors and opportunities, right? It's not just about downside, it's also about upside. Um, understanding the financials because we like, as any fund manager, to investing in companies with solid balance sheets and cash flows and, um, you know, good valuations and so on. Um, and that forms, um, we've got a very collegiate approach where um, the analysts recommend stocks to, in the portfolio and we sit down as a team and discuss all that in terms of the portfolio construction. Um, and then, as I said, the last bit, last but not least, um, because this is really the area that, so our clients, um, which are mainly high net worth family offices at this mm -hmm. point in time, Sort of like, so the performance is great, right? They like that, but then they're really keen on the advocacy. Um, it's like, how are we influencing companies to change? And so that's a really important bit. And, and what you talked a little bit before about that advocacy and not having to be a holder, which is intriguing mm. to have influence. Yep. What, what would you say is the typical response or some of the example of responses from some of these Australian companies when you knock on their door and want to talk to them about these issues? Oh, so, so well, first, for, First of all, I don't need, necessarily need to knock on their door. They actually sometimes reach out to us, right? Mm -hmm. Which is interesting in itself. Mm. So when you get the call from a chairman of a company you don't own and they go, look, um, you know, this, we're just seeing so much more questioning around ESG from all stakeholders, right? It's not just investors, it's, it's clients, it's employees, it's across the board. Mm -hmm. um, the issues are really complex, yes. Um, We've really got not much experience of doing this because they haven't. Many companies have not sort of really not spent much time reporting on it. Not there's a lot of companies that do it really well, but there's a lot of companies that you know haven't really reported on it uh, adequately in the past. And so, because the issues are so complex um, and require so many resourcing, um, it's like so they're very keen to talk to me, have me come and talk to them. Sometimes at board level, it's like. So what, how should we think about this? How should we report on it? What's material? What should we do, we do first, right? Um, but then the companies we approach, we get a really good response um, because we're keen to talk to companies we can't invest in as well because we also want to influence them. We want the whole market to move because that's the only way we're going to solve the problems we face. 
because you always learn something. And I think one of the most intriguing things I find is that I go to, when we go to a company meeting and I say we, because we, we've got a very team-based collegiate approach. So mm-hmm. I have certain sector responsibilities, but when I set up a meeting with a company, all, all the team's invited, right? And so, which is really useful because we, we all um, participate in the meeting and then we can share our thoughts on, on, on the meeting afterwards. It's much better than doing these things solo. Um, but, um, you know, com- companies are really keen to engage because there, this, this is such a growing area and they're getting so many more questions about it and the pressures are building. Um, and there's a lot of work to be done by most companies in order to get their house in order in terms of the, the appropriate reporting um, and targeting. And, and Rome isn't built in a day here, right? This takes time. It's really complicated typically and it takes a lot of effort to get it right. How many people are in the team? And could you talk us and maybe take through an example perhaps of the research process of how it starts out um, and how you come to build a position or start a position in a, a company. If you could just take us through that in terms of how it works within Melior to give the listener a bit of a flavour of um, how you think about things. Yeah, so so we're a six-person team mm-hmm. um, at the moment. As I said, we're, we're in the market for two people, so we're about to go to eight. Um, you know, really interestingly, you know, this industry, like many other industries, has a, has a diversity problem, mm-hmm. um, particularly a gender diversity problem. We actually majority uh, female. Right, so which is which is interesting in itself, and and if you look at the applicants that I am getting for these two um, positions we've advertised, you know, majority female. So so um, that that's really interesting in itself. In that, um, you know, we that that gender um, and ethnic diversity for us is super important mm-hmm. um, because that brings a lot of value. That divorce, diversity of thought and opinion brings a huge amount of value to our business in, in, in the way we think about things. So, but we've, we've got a, um, a four-step process. So, so the first thing we do is um, we've developed our own framework to measure impact, which is complicated, right? And it's, a, it's quite a sophisticated framework. And I won't, won't, won't go through all the details now, but we, we take the company's core products and services and, and go, is this negatively or positively aligned with a UN SDG sub-goal? Sub-goal's important. There's 169 of them, right? So there's, that's the nitty-gritty of the UN SDGs, which I'm, I'm assuming you, your listeners will be aware of the SDGs. The 17... I think it's worth you touching okay. on them. So the 17 goals. So the UN... Yep. So the SDGs um, superseded the Millennial Goals. The Millennial Goals were set up by the UN to set up a framework to alleviate um, social environmental problems of developing countries. Mm-hmm. The SDG superseded that because it applies to all countries. Um, and it talks to uh, good health, uh, climate action, responsible consumption and production, uh, sustainable cities. There's a whole, the 17 of them which really talk to how do we create a sustainable society, both socially and environmentally. And by the way, Australia's actually been, because every year the UN puts out a scorecard by country of how countries are traveling, Australia's been decreasing in its rankings. One of the reasons for that is um, lack of climate, lack of policy on addressing climate change, right? That's one of the reasons. Um, There's other reasons as well. Um, So on your four steps of investing? So so first step, is this company, company X, prima facie net? Positive. And I said net because, as I said, many companies, we look at the negative things and the positive things. Okay. Um, so if it is, it's a gate. We can therefore, we then go and look at our ESG assessment of the company. 
So how does the company actually go about doing business? And we look up about we look at a hundred factors across the E, the S, and the G. So an example would be: Is the company disclosing scope one, scope two, three emissions, and does it have Paris aligned emissions reductions targets? What's it doing about plastic waste? What what's it doing about water? What's it doing about biodiversity? That's the E. The S would be what what's its safety record look like? Um, staff turnover, gender pay gap. Um, gender um, dispersion at executive level and, and below. So looking at all the S mm-hmm. and the G would be, you know, does majority independent directors, independent chair, what's the tenure of the board? Um, do they have an ESG subcommittee? Is the ESG factors linked to REM? And as I said before, the materiality of all those factors differ by industry and company, right? So that's really important. So we, we adjust for that, depending on what particular industry the company's operating in. Um, we then, uh, we want to invest in companies create, with net positive impact with the best ESG credentials to mitigate the risk. So the companies that get through that mm-hmm. second stage, that's when we do the financial analysis. So we do all our own modeling, do all our own research. So, and it does the company stack up financially. Um, then, as I said before, that goes through the portfolio construction phase, and it's a 30-stock portfolio, relatively concentrated, high conviction, low turnover. And then the last bit of it, as I said last month, is the advocacy. So we spend a lot of time not just talking to companies, but a whole bunch of other institutions as well, universities, NGOs, you know, th- these sort of podcasts. So so the media, um, I think I'm coming up advocacy. in the AFR this weekend. Yes. So and, and that's about getting the message across that we need to drive companies to um, to drive positive change, and and by the way, that will be value enhancing typically for the company. So this concept of a trade off for investors is also not well understood by companies because sometimes when we talk to companies, they go, "Well, how much is it going to cost us?" Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I think that's the wrong question. How, how much is it going to cost you by not having appropriate ESG disclosure and metrics and targets in place? Changing tack a little bit, Tim, if we could maybe talk about, in your view, what are some of the themes that you're really excited about in terms of the areas where you think there's a really positive score when you put them through your ESG filters, Mm -hmm. and there's also going to be big financial tailwinds in those sectors just because of where we're currently sitting. Yeah, I think that um, the the energy complex is a really interesting place, right? and so we've kind of seen phase one with the development of large-scale renewables mm-hmm. and solar PV, right, and what that's done to the economic of power, economics of power generation, right? And we've seen it through wholesale electricity prices and the recent you know, downgrades by um, AGL and, and Origin. So that's massively disruptive. I think phase two is going to be the advent of new technologies like green hydrogen and hydrogen fuel cells. Um, and that's going to completely transform the energy energy generation system. Um, but there's also, and we saw that yesterday with Fortescue's announcement about it's bringing its net zero target forward by twenty from twenty forty to twenty thirty. But also this announcement about the technology they're developing through Fortescue Future Industries with with green hydrogen. You know, we're talking about oh, green well, ammonia is a sort of a version of green hydrogen. We're talking about you know, green ammonia-powered ships, green ammonia-powered locomotives. Yeah, th- this is profound, I think, for the change and mix of how we generate uh, energy, not only in this country, but globally, right? Um, 
And I think the consequence of that is, what does this mean for um, the manufacturing base and the ability to bring uh, manufacturing back onshore to Australia, given that we have an abundance of um, raw commodities here? Well, abundance of raw raw um, commodities, but lots of sunshine and lots of wind to create the large scale, because we need large scale renewables and electrolyzers to create the, um, the green hydrogen. But if you can bring the la heavy manufacturing back on shore to couple into that, which has been basically exported offshore, I think there's a potentially massive economic opportunity around that. So um, that's, I think that's one area. And another would be um, uh, carbon, soil carbon would be, you know, agriculture's opportunity to change farming techniques with the potential for you know better productivity and also generating carbon credits from from soil carbon. So I think there's a lot of technological disruption going on in that carbon energy complex, mm-hmm. and I think it's super industri- interesting and it. And there's huge opportunity. I mean, there's going to be losers, as obviously as well. Um, but, but you're long only, right? You're not shorting any of these where you think that no, we're not. Hello, they're in trouble. We just don't own those particular okay. companies. Um, but it reminds me of my telco days when I was covering telco cell side and, and you know, the advent of mobile phones, right? Which mm-hmm. wasn't that long ago. Sure. And, and this concept that you know this, you know, the, the, the idea of a smartphone was just. Never even heard of it, right? Mm-hmm. But this idea that you will never, dis- you know, we're always going to have pair our landlines, couple, couple lines, monopoly. Yeah, we're always going to have our landlines. Of course, you're never going to dispose of your landline because you need to phone the hospital or something. Well, that's such a sort of bizarre, quaint concept now, right? And yep. so I think this whole idea that you know we won't be able to go off grid and you know batteries will only. I just think the technological development is just going to be so far ahead of what we're currently expecting, and, and that's. As I said, really exciting, huge opportunities, but there'll be losers as well, like there always is when you get this technological disruption. And we're only at the sort of starting point of that, I think, David. And, and do you see enough opportunities within Australia for those sort of technologies at investable scale for yourself well, in that listed space? Well, in the listed space, we've got the commodities we can invest in, because if you think about how this evolves, we're still going to need iron ore, right? We still need to make steel. We're just going to make it in a different way, right? We're going to be making it with you know green steel, with you know, green hydrogen derived technologies, probably. And already, you know, there's already prototypes of those sort of technology available. We need nickel for batteries. Mm-hmm. We need lithium for batteries. We need copper. We need lots of copper, right? So, so some of those, we don't, won't need thermal coal, but, you know, some of those, a lot of those commodities, I think, you know, demands probably being underestimated given the, you know, the demand that, the extent of the product that's going to be required to service all those needs for that technological change. And, so, and then you've got, sorry, just, and then you've got, you know, a Fortescue with the derivative of, say, FFI, which is pushing this technological development really hard, that there's a way of investing it through a, a Fortescue investment, you're getting exposure to that. So. so can you tell us about maybe some of your top investment investment positions or a couple, a handful and talk to us about the thesis in place for them as yeah. examples? Yeah, so, so one would be Oz Minerals, right? Mm-hmm. Now, we don't have any preconceived ethical notion that mining is bad, right? That's not our starting point. Our starting point is all companies do good and bad, and yet mining causes harm to the environment. So when we think about mining, is we think about it as long as um, the mining is done in a responsible way with minimal impact, both environmentally and socially. And what I mean by socially is we've you know, seen this this year with the impact of Duke and Gorge and Rio, that that respect, particularly for first 
nation's people and the way they interact is crucially important. Mm -hmm. And when I think about environmental, it's like, you know, tailings dams risk um, and water usage and so on. So providing that company does that in a responsible way, yes, we can invest in it. Um, so Oz Minerals, for example, has been a fantastic investment for us. Um, the copper price is at record highs. I think the market's been wrong, typically, on the outlook for copper demand because it's, I think, underestimated the uh, incremental output that's required to satisfy all the additional copper that we need for the likes of wind turbines and EVs. And there's a lot of additional copper required, right? We need a lot of copper. So, you know, in order to um, reduce emissions, we need a lot more copper. So if, if you take the case of Oz Minerals, um, our view is it's a company that's, that's well run. Um, it's got a really solid balance sheet. It's got assets that are relatively easy to understand, the majority being in South Australia. It's got minimal social and um, environmental risk. In fact, last week they had their first ever sustainability day where the whole board turned up. I think that's, you know, just shows their commitment to this. And so Oz Minerals has been, a, as an example, it's, we've ha held it since inception. We still own it. We're overweight the company and it's been a fantastic contributor to the portfolio because the copper price has obviously been way ahead of expectations and I expect that will continue. Um, another example would be Cochlear, um, which we, um, we sold out of going into COVID because the issue was principally around um, elective sh surgery shutting up, shutting right? Up. So the, there was that um, interim period during COVID where we didn't own Cochlear, but we've subsequently bought back into it because, you know, it provides an essential service uh, in that producing um, products that alleviate he hearing loss in people is, is a critical product that we need for better health and well-being in people. So the product is, is crucially important. It's a it's a great company that's extremely well run with solid financials, and that's been uh, since since we bought into it um, earlier, in, bought back into it. It's been a big contributor to the. And if I'm not wrong, I think the addressable market that is those that are eligible or would benefit from a cochlear implant is something like only 10% of people who actively have them in the world. So they've got a huge untapped market unless something comes from left field from a technology point of view. Yeah. But that there's always that, yeah. With that any is, company, David, there's always that, you know, there's that sure, unforeseen risk. But you know, we do our best to try and understand what those risks are. Can we maybe talk a little bit about um, uh, the energy and the energy area? And you mm. said that would be uh, a big theme and an area. And uh, we haven't spoken about storage at all, but you, you yeah. alluded to it in the sort yeah. of minerals and commodities that are going to be needed for that. Yeah. Um, I think it, it's interesting to see someone like Bill Gates who's been very topical, you know, in terms of him making calls about COVID pre and, you know, and, and sort of Netflix things that have come back up and, and, and he's got a recent book out on the area of climate change. Mm -hmm. uh, but he seems to be someone who's supporting the use of nuclear. And then I think um, if, I, if I read right in some of your material, that's an area in uranium and nuclear, or maybe I've got it wrong, where you guys uh, and Melior's steering well clear of. Mm -hmm. Um, what, what, what is the rationale for that? Has Gates got it wrong or is there a different lens? Oh, yeah, well, I'm not going to be arrogant enough to say he's got it wrong, but yep. um, I think there's major issues around. You know, once you fax up, well, the issues are, n number one, if you look at the plants that have been under construction recently in Europe, one in France, one in Finland, you know, the, the cost overruns are enormous, right? They're these extremely costly 
um, to build, um, and then they take years and years to build as, as well. So that, that's problem number one. Mm-hmm. In contrast to um, uh, you know a solar farm, right, which can be put up pretty quickly. And what's more, the 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 levelized cost of energy of the of renewables has plummeted over the last decade as we get scale economies from you know the equipment's just become cheaper, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that's in sharp contrast to nuclear. Um, number two, what do you do with the waste? Right, mm-hmm. that's a massive negative externality that no one seems to consider. With and you know like the likes of France has a big problem with actually decommissioning its nuclear fleet and what to replace them with, but the decommissioning costs, including the cost of waste disposal, and what are you actually going to do with this waste? I think that's a, that's, that's a major hurdle. So why do we need nuclear? I don't think we need nuclear, right? Given this emerging green hydrogen, given, given, said, given the plummeting costs of large-scale renewables, and storage, right? I don't think you put all that together. I, personally, we don't see the need for nuclear, and and that negative externality issue is is a really big problem, which I don't think really gets addressed. Right? I mean, who who wants that dumped in their backyard? Uh, no one, from what I can see. So where does it go? Yeah, it's a good question and good point, um, Tim. Look, I think you've you've given us a really good overview um, and introduction to the strategy. Um, congratulations on the success today. It's been fantastic. Thanks, David. Um, is there anything you'd like to leave our listeners with before we conclude the episode? Yeah, thanks, David. I, I just um, like to say that I think, you know, the the, um, the prospects for investing in a an impact fund where you're mitigating ESG risk and obviously doing the financials, basically our style of fund, um, is extremely positive. And that the, um, the thematics that I just talked about, I think they're only going to accelerate the, the, the interest in the space from all stakeholders uh, is just going to intensify. So I think this is a really interesting journey. I think it's really exciting. And I think investing in this sort of strategy that we've got at Melior will generate superior returns. So, you know, I'm really excited about the outlook. So. Terrific. Thanks for your time. Really appreciate it. Thanks, David. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com. Any views expressed in this recording represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or recommendation and may not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit www.moneysmart.gov.au to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.